But we decided to push ahead with the rebrand and the funding got pulled. And we had one month to refinance business or lose our, our home. Welcome back to Series 10 of 40 Minute Mentor, the podcast on a mission to raise aspirations and inspire the next generation of category-defining founders. From purpose-led entrepreneurs to Olympic champions, you'll learn firsthand from today's successful leaders on what it takes to be brilliant, all in just 40 minutes. Today's 40-minute mentor is Dimple Patel, a highly accomplished entrepreneur and currently CEO of Truva, a leading global marketplace for independent boutiques. Starting her career at Goldman Sachs, Dimple then co-founded a chain of independent coffee shops specializing in premium handmade products across the UK, which she scaled from concept to launch to 35 stores before ultimately exiting to private equity in 2018. Moving through the ranks at Truva for the last five years to CEO, she has navigated the business through COVID and multiple acquisitions. I've gotten to know Dimple over the last few months following a very kind introduction from Armar Palmer from the Bay HQ, and she is an amazing entrepreneur. So I am super excited to be able to share her incredible story with you all. So Dimple, thank you so much for being here today. I've been really looking forward to this. How are you? Yeah, good. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. I have heard such great things about you. And then we met and I instantly knew we would get on and that we had to get you on the podcast. So this is kind of, this has been a few months in the making and I'm really excited about it. But as we always like to do, we're going to warm you up with a few quick fire questions. So please, can you finish the following sentences after me? First up, I grew up wanting to be a scientist i was just really really curious about the world and always kind of had my nose in science and then there's just something really exciting about things exploding in a science lab and that just had me hooked fair enough yeah i think i made some very weird concoctions and they were tended to be like mixes of fruit juice more than actual scientific experience when I was younger but I definitely went through that phase yeah awesome the last time I was scared was when when I was abroad for an event fairly recently it finished slightly later than I had expected so I ended up walking back to my hotel and my phone took me through not the best lit route in town and actually there was just Something quite terrifying about it being midnight in a place that you don't know. It's really dark. I thought I was going to have to take my heels off and run at one point. Oh no, that's horrible. The most memorable day in my career was? I would say memorable for both good and bad reasons. The day after we found out about the maid collapse is probably the day I will never forget. Oh, I can imagine. Uh, We'll come on to talk about that. We'll tease our audience a bit with that one and we'll come back to it. My biggest failure to date is? So I don't know if this is a failure or a mistake, but when I was initially funding my first business, I made the mistake of putting down my home as collateral on the debt that I took out on that business. Really bad idea. Thankfully, did not end up homeless, but we got very, very close at one point. So yes, very, very early mistake could have been a colossal failure. Yeah, I mean, that's a first and not a first for entrepreneurs, I'm sure out there. But yeah, first for this podcast. Final quick fire question. If there was one thing I could change about entrepreneurship, it would be? The inaccessibility of it. I think if you look at the life circumstances of entrepreneurship, 
it makes it inaccessible to a lot of the population. So unless you have a really strong support network, financial safety net, access to funding, really, really strong networks, a lot of the time you can't afford to take that risk. So I think entrepreneurship can also be more accessible to more privileged people than those who aren't. I think that's very fair and a great shame because I'm sure we're missing out on some incredible entrepreneurs and businesses as a result. Um, Yeah, very fair point. Something that I hope we can change over the years ahead and certainly with this podcast we really are hoping to try and inspire everybody from all walks of life and all backgrounds to to be encouraged to go for it and um you know hopefully democratize access to mentorship so dimple thank you for that really excited to dive into your story and we're going to do what we we usually do and start at the very beginning so do you mind sharing with our listeners a bit about your childhood and how it shaped you into the person and leader you are today So I grew up on a very rough council estate up in South Yorkshire. This was kind of late 80s, early 90s. My parents were both first generation immigrants. They moved over in their late teens. Neither of them spoke the language. They didn't have any formal schooling. My dad slept on cardboard boxes when he first moved over because they couldn't afford a bed. And then worked their way up to buy this corner shop in this really terrible estate. And... I had two younger sisters and we grew up surrounded by drugs and racism and crime. We had 10 foot fencing around our house with barbed wire along the top. And that was all I really knew until I was about 13. I went through school, fortunately, on scholarships and that gave me access to education, which ultimately completely changed my life. But it meant that I grew up being very, very different in most of the situations that I was in. I was always the underdog. I faced a lot of challenge, but it built this natural drive to kind of get out of where we were, to achieve better, and also resilience and this ability to face adversity. So actually, I would say now I'm more of a product of that part of my life than any of the parts that kind of followed from Cambridge onwards, but a huge, huge part of you know, every part of my career that I've been able to see since then. Yeah, I mean, that's so inspiring. And I think there's, it's a really common trait, isn't it? The resilience, that underdog mentality, you do see it a lot in some of the very best leaders and entrepreneurs. And clearly, your upbringing has had a huge impact on the person you are today, which is is amazing. And just your parents also sound incredibly inspiring. So what a great example for you as an entrepreneur. You started, you mentioned Goldman Sachs, which is obviously an incredibly prestigious bank where you start in the middle of a recession in 2008. So that must have been interesting. And clearly that you would have had to build even more resilience in the early parts of your career. Tell us just a little bit about that moment in your life and career and any like crucial lessons you learned while you were in the bank. So, I mean, like you said, worst possible timing to walk into banking Ever. It was right in between Best Ends and Lehman Brothers coming crashing down. And as I walked in, we had people walking out with their brown boxes and, and mass redundancies. Looking at it from the other side, though, what an incredible time and place to start my career. It was a huge baptism of fire. I got given so much responsibility almost from day one. I was trading hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars on a book actually pricing trades for clients, managing that risk. And a lot of it I had to work out for myself because everybody was so stressed and 
the markets were in such turmoil that no one had time to sit next to you and say, you do this, and then you do this, and then you do that. So actually, there was something incredibly entrepreneurial about the way we were thrown out onto that trading floor and just had to make it work. I was trading Greece, Italy, Portugal, and Spain, which started off calm. But then when the Eurozone crisis hit, I was the only trader in the whole of Goldman that knew what had been happening with those credits. And it just meant that I had to learn how to make decisions quickly. I had to be able to connect dots across all of these different data points. Take a view as well. This is really, really important. Deal with very, very stressed out individuals and deal handle a lot of pressure. And do it very, very quickly because one wrong trade is going to hemorrhage your book. My mental arithmetic has also never been better than it was during that time. But it was really, really fantastic for me. The hours were long. It was really a pressure cooker of learning. But I just think looking back, it's such an incredible place to start your career. It teaches you so much discipline. So I wouldn't, I definitely would not have changed those years at all. Amazing. Yeah, it certainly sounds like a a really important grounding and uh, clearly, you know, set you up for success. Dimple, you founded your own business, Love Coffee, which was a chain of independent coffee shops. Can you tell us a bit more about how it came to be and where the idea came from? I was obviously having a ball at Goldman, but once the market started to calm down and after a couple of years, I realized it wasn't what I wanted to spend the rest of my career doing. I wanted to be in constantly challenging environments. I wanted to be pushed. I wanted to grow. And I also wanted to have a family. And I I couldn't see how those two pieces were going to come together. So that's when I started exploring entrepreneurship. And I saw it as a way to build, to grow and contribute, but also a way to have a bit more control over my time as well. However, problem is I had no funding, no experience and no network. So actually getting a new business off the ground was really tricky and we were in the middle of a recession. But the benefit of being in a recession, though, is a lot of businesses have failed. And some of those businesses are fundamentally strong businesses that were either not operated well or due to various consequences couldn't continue. So that's where I started looking because failed businesses, a lot of the infrastructure is probably reusable. You don't require a lot of upfront investment. And so whilst I never originally set out to start a chain of coffee shops, I found a coffee chain that had failed and took on two of the stores that had just been shut down. So they thought, okay, we're never going to be able to turn these around, but they were fully kitted out. My logic was if I can take on those two stores, it's a fairly simple business model. It will teach me a lot about building and growing businesses. And if I can make them profitable, then actually through taking something that somebody else wasn't able to make work and turning it around and making it work, there's a huge learning trajectory there that actually will set the foundation for any growth plan that follows. So that was how I came across coffee. I, to this day, still do not drink coffee, but it was a massively growing market. It was really lifting off in the UK. That has blown my mind that you don't even drink coffee. I love the entrepreneurialism and the foresight to take on such a big challenge, especially off the back of a recession. It's a bold move, but clearly that bravery paid off. Now, I know you started it as a side hustle when you were still at Goldman Sachs. So how did you balance those two things? And when did you know it was the right time to go all in on it? Goldman was obviously all consuming Monday to Friday. 
at that point, I don't know if it changed now, but we weren't even allowed mobile phones on the trading floor because of all the insider trading rules. But it meant that Saturday, Sunday, there was very little happening. So it was effectively a seven-day week lifestyle. Monday to Friday would be on the trading floor. Saturday, Sunday would be on the shop floor. But there was just something really powerful about being there with the team on our busiest days and making coffees with them, working alongside them, because what that did was it built an ownership mindset in them that meant that while I wasn't there Monday to Friday, the business was in good hands. It also meant that everything else had to fall away. So the compromise was I didn't have a massive social life. I didn't see a lot of my friends for a very, very long time. But you only have so many hours in the day and you make the trade-offs that you need to make for a given point in your life. And getting a new business off the ground takes absolutely everything. Trying to do it while you're already working another business to try and keep that financial safety net, you're just overloaded at that point. So it was good because having the financial safety net of Goldman meant that I could make better decisions with Love Coffee. I wasn't being rushed by this ticking timer of how am I going to pay my bills? How am I going to pay my rent? But it also meant that I was toying with burnout. So I had to be very, very conscious about my resource, resting, making sure that I was recovering as much as I could in between the two working roles that I had. That's a really difficult balancing act. It's also a really important message that we want to promote on this podcast. Given the years of hustle culture in the tech scene, if you don't take time to rest and look after your mental and physical health and well-being, it really is all downhill from there. As someone that's burnt out multiple times, I know how important it is. But as all founders do, I still struggle with it today. Uh, And I'm sure you can relate to that, Dimple. Yes, absolutely. I feel like there's something about starting a business where it's such a huge part of you and you put so much into it that you sometimes lose sight of where that line is. And I think that's either you know, founders, but also like a lot of leadership positions. And, you know, I spent a lot of time in burnout, trying to recover from it, finding that often I maybe fall back into it without quite realizing again. So I think what you say about kind of building regular rest and recovery into your routine safeguards that somewhat rather than assuming that you're going to see it before it hits because you don't. And that's not to deny that you have to be relentless and work incredibly hard because of course you do startups aren't all rainbows and unicorns and running a business especially scaling one to an exit requires tons of hard work and and a huge number of sacrifices but in order to achieve this you have to protect your your health and well-being and it's great that that is being more recognized these days Dimple, you've had huge successes, but I'm sure there were loads of challenges along the way. So can you share some of those? And for any founders that are listening, how did you find that transition from corporate life to being a founder? I actually loved the freedom. I loved not having the constraints, not having the rules, not having the set hours. I found it incredibly liberating. But what was terrifying was also it's so much less secure. And you have this almost a shadow of failure that is just following you around because every decision that you make directly impacts the trajectory of your business. So getting comfortable with that took a while, but also, you know, I've always been really driven. I've always been a hard worker. So for me, it was get my head down, really kind of drive forward, focus on the business and don't look behind you. 
worrying about what's going to creep up on you. And there was a very, very clear line between what I was doing and the decisions that I was making and the success of the business. And that for me was really rewarding because you could see what you're building. But then in terms of the challenges, I mean, I was a first time founder and you don't know what you don't know. And as a first time founder, you are trying to learn everything from scratch. You're trying to problem solve from first principles. And I made so many mistakes on the way and had to bounce back. Love Coffee was also, we were scaling a a physical operation that was incredibly grueling. So you have kind of all of the mental challenges of building and growing a business, fundraising, et cetera, but also physically being on your feet 12 to 15 hours a day is really exhausting. Scaling and operations across the UK, making sure that you have consistency of service, building teams. And we had a real range in terms of the teams in the business. You have kind of management teams who are obviously might have 10, 15 years of experience. And then you have people in the stores who, you know, we were recruiting our job centers and bringing people into work who may have been unemployed, but quite a significant period of time before that. How do you motivate them? How do you get them to look after your business as if it was their own? How do you get them to pay, you know, that attention to detail that that is such a key part of the brand that you're building? But going back to your quick fire questions at the beginning, there was one absolutely terrifying moment in Love Coffee that I look back on and potentially left me slightly scarred. We put down our house as collateral on the the loan that we took out for the business. And about five, six years into the business, we saw that the market was moving very much towards independent coffee, quite boutique, quite artisan, which really aligned with our product, but didn't necessarily align with our brand. Our brand identity had been much more mainstream. So I'm talking Costas, Nero's, that kind of thing. I rebranded and I completely rebranded. It was unrecognizable in terms of the difference from one to two, and really wanted to roll this out across our portfolio. And I think we had over 30 stores at the time, took it to our bank and they hated it. They hated it because it was, with every store, we were trying to create a unique identity and they wanted chain. They wanted to be able to see that it was going to have the multiples that Costa had or Starbucks had. So they gave us an ultimatum, which was if we continued with the rebrand, they were not going to be funding us anymore. So at that point, I had to make a decision as to whether I pushed ahead with the right strategic outcome for the business, manage the financial risk, but also know that if the financing gets pulled and I don't refinance the business, I'm not going to have anywhere to live. As a leader, you have to operate in the best interest of the business. Your decisions have to be the decisions that are going to help that business continue to grow and flourish. And personally, a lot of those decisions will be difficult. The consequences are never easy. But we decided to push ahead with the rebrand and the funding got pulled. And we had one month to refinance business or lose our our home. And long term... That was the right thing to do because the rebrand is the reason why we got the inbound to sell the business. But at the time, it was terrifying. And largely came from a mistake of putting it down as collateral in the first place. That's really interesting. And it just goes to show the reality and sometimes terror that comes with founder life. 
But I think having conviction in your ideas and really backing yourself is such an important part of being a founder. It's such a great story. So, th- so thank you so much for sharing it. You ultimately exited the business to be after eight years, which is, uh, you know, a once in a lifetime achievement. So congrats again on that. How did you feel when you signed that contract? And how did you decide what to do next? It was incredibly emotional. Acquisitions are hard. And I think with your first acquisition, you don't really know what is a typical question versus an atypical question. And you are so attached to your business. So selling it was tough, but I'd also personally got to the point where I knew it was time to leave. The business was ready to scale. We had a blueprint. I just wasn't finding those operational challenges exciting anymore. And I wanted to move on to the next stage of my career. So actually, the timing was perfect. It was just the separation of being able to step away, knowing that the business is going to grow and succeed even without you in it, which is also as a founder, your business is a huge part of your own identity. So true. But it's never a given. It's never a given that business will exit. And it's never a given that post-exit, that business will continue to succeed and it will continue to grow. So actually to be in that position is incredibly fortunate. In terms of what I wanted to do next, so I knew three things when I sold that business. One was that I wanted to continue operating. I did look at moving into investment, but I still wanted that hands-on element of the day-to-day. The second part was I wanted to move into tech. I'd seen how much tech can accelerate scale and having scaled something that was incredibly physical, capital intensive. I wanted to grow, but I wanted to be able to leverage tech to get there. And the third piece was I knew that I didn't have it in me to start a business again. And at that point, I thought possibly ever. I think I've moved away from that now. I think I was just very burnt out at the time. But I had a a young family. My children were three and five. And I knew I did not have it in me to give what was required to do that zero to one of a new business. So there were kind of my parameters. Beyond that, it was just going out, having loads of conversations and just learning so much more about ultimately a new space and a new industry that I wanted to move into. This podcast is brought to you by JBM, a values-driven executive search firm that specializes in connecting world-class general managers, COOs, and commercial and marketing leaders into the fastest-growing startups and scale-ups and top-tier VCs on a permanent, fractional, interim, and advisory basis. But JBM are not your typical search firm. We focus on long-term relationships rather than transactional interactions, whilst also creating events and content, just like this podcast, to inspire and connect talent everywhere. So, whether you're looking for world-class diverse talent for your team, or if you're looking for your next startup leadership role, our team would absolutely love to chat to you. So head over to jbmc.co.uk to find out more or drop us a line on info at jbmc.co.uk. But for now, back to more insights from today's 40-minute mentor. 
Dimbo, I really admire your self-awareness and having the humility to know that it was the right time to step away from the business and that you needed a new challenge. I think there are lots of other people out there that that kind of get in their own way, aren't self-aware enough or honest with themselves enough that there might be better people to take a business to the next level. So I think that's it's really admirable uh, because I know, you know, it's, it's really, really hard to let go of your baby uh, when you've put so much blood, sweat and tears into it. But clearly it's been the right decision uh, because you then moved on to Truva and have been through an incredible growth journey. So, so tell us, what was it like going from being your own boss to then working for someone again? And what did that move to Truva teach you, especially in those early days leading uh, Truva's operations? Yeah, so when I joined Tuba, I knew two things. One was that I wanted to learn. This was still a new industry that I was moving into and I wanted to contribute. When I met the founders, my dynamic with them was what made me want to join. And they were first-time founders. I was an executive founder. So it meant that our relationship wasn't really hierarchical. They gave me a lot of freedom to operate. It was incredibly collaborative. And there was this sense of, we're building something together. How can we do that as a team? But it was such a huge change in the other respect, which was I was building out operations, such a, a core part of any business. I didn't own the PL. I didn't have to worry about the funding because I didn't own the runway of the business and et cetera, et cetera. So actually being able to go back into that build stage without having to worry about the existential crises that the business might be facing about a year, I think is about how long it lasted, was really, really refreshing. And I really loved being able to go in from at the ground level, get to know the systems, help build logic, work with the engineers. That's a a time in my life that I otherwise would not have got. So actually really enjoyed going back to being a learner. I think that says a lot about your personality, that there was no ego there about not being CEO. Uh, and that it was a really big opportunity for you to learn. And I'd imagine that was pretty liberating. I guess it didn't last too long, though, as you quickly progressed through the ranks to become COO and then ultimately CEO in 2022. So how did you find those stepping stones through those different roles? Because I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people listening that will be COOs that are ultimately wanting to become CEOs. So I'd love your thoughts and any advice for anyone that might be looking to make that transition at the moment. I had say about 12 months to really kind of go and dig into the the details of how Truva works and understand all of the systems and our operating model and really get to know the team as well. There's a benefit from coming in in a less senior position, which is you work alongside a lot of people as opposed to just managing everyone. And Tuba has an incredibly talented team, but getting the trust of that team and having them come through and deliver for you is the foundation for your progression. A business could have the most incredible idea in the world, but if it doesn't have the right team to deliver on it, it's not going to get anywhere. I actually really enjoyed, I was surprised, I really enjoyed stepping back into that leadership role, being incredibly cross-functional again, flexing those muscles that I had developed in my previous business. And I think what really surprised me was how much transferable knowledge I had from business one that I could apply to business two, which sounds really obvious now. But as an executive founder, you kind of lose your place in the market and you lose sight of the skills that you have actually developed and where they slot back in and where they're relevant. So taking that step back and then going back in again, 
was really great because I got to use everything I'd learned before, but supplement it with that year of learning within Truba and actually leverage it at the point that the business really needed it, which was as we were heading into COVID and then through the made acquisitions as well. In terms of COOs versus CEOs, COO role is so different depending on the business's needs and the CEOs that they're working with. So there's so much published about the different types of COOs that you get. So actually, I'm going to kind of look at it as what does a CEO need and what are some of the key skills there, which I would say is probably what I've spent most of my career doing. But it is moving into a role that is incredibly relationship focused across a huge range of stakeholders and you have such a responsibility to them as well so your investors your shareholders your team your suppliers and being able to align them all towards a common goal being able to communicate your strategic vision and communicate it in a way that you're inspiring people that you're helping them push forward and I really think that CEOs should lead from the front. They should be there. They should inspire confidence in their team because ultimately their leadership abilities are what shapes the culture of the organization that they are running. And I think those are the pieces which are slightly different from what you might see in a typical COO role. And I think the final piece is the ability to make and carry your decisions. You are the last rung in that ladder. So you are responsible for every single decision that you've made in your organization and what happens as a consequence of that. And that will be everything from the impact on your runway, changes to your operating model, partnerships, through to how you communicate with your board and the relationships that you have there. Being able to shoulder that responsibility, I think, is where a lot of this burnout comes from. And it's not for everyone either. There's a lot of pressure that comes with it. And I think that is probably the most defining characteristic between a COO and a CEO, because you do have COOs that are second in command across the entire business, own P&L, make incredibly strategic decisions. But ultimately, there is always somebody else that is responsible for the outcome. That is such good advice, Dimple. Thank you very much. And I will be definitely sending this to a few COOs that I've recently chatted to who I'm sure will really appreciate your advice. So thank you. Truva was and has been a real roller coaster with COVID acquisitions, particularly by made.com, which uh, then went into administration just a few months after. So that is a day you mentioned that you'll never forget. So do you mind telling us a bit more about that journey and what your learnings were as a leader? And how did you manage to keep the team's spirits positive and protect the culture through these crises? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it has been, I think, as most early businesses face, it's been a real journey. I think the piece that I'm probably going to focus on most was the made piece, because it was a situation that I think very few businesses will ever, and I hope, ever face. But it was also a situation where a lot of people turned to me last year and told me it was completely impossible. So we sold the business in May last year. What a lot of people don't know is actually that acquisition fell through the first time around at the point of fund transfer. We had gone through the entire process. We'd been working on it for six months. We had completed all of our due diligence and then made had a bumpy trading weekend, got cold feet and pulled out. So it took us two weeks to get that back on track and complete. Should really have taken that as an omen at the time, but Completed nonetheless two weeks later. And then four months after that, 
got the news that the group was insolvent, they hadn't been able to secure financing, and that they were closing down. That is incredibly difficult news to receive for anybody. But because we were part of a publicly listed group, I got that news at the same point that a press release went out to the press, which meant I had 10 minutes to prepare to brief the team. Hadn't had a chance to map out what that meant for Truba. We'd received instructions. You know, the FCA had been supervising everything that was happening. We had advisors, lawyers, etc. At that point, we'd just been told that we had to close down. So summoned the team onto a call, very open with them about what had happened. They were going to hear about it in the press anyway. And at that point, was really honest that I didn't know necessarily what this meant for Truba, but that I would be as open as I could be with them going forward. And I would do everything that I could to try and work us out of this situation. But for now, it was very much like, I realized this is really, really difficult news. Financially, we were in a good position. We had runway, we were ahead of target. So this was not an outcome that was anything that the team had driven in any way. Let them all sign off early, spend some time with their families. And then I had an hour before the Street Hub board meeting. That was Truva's board meeting, where we would determine the fate of Truva. And that was going to be the meeting where I would be asked if I had shut the business down or not. And there's no playbook for this. I spoke to a couple of people who were like, well, you kind of have to do what you're told. I don't think there is much room for movement. But there was just something quite unjust about that situation. The business... We were so mission-driven. The business deserved to exist. Our team was incredible. Our boutiques are amazing. And we were in this situation that was not of our making. And I think this is where some of Truva's values really... I, we wrote them in 2020 after COVID because we found that they were the values that come through for us in times of crisis. And the one that really came through for me in that point was we set the boundaries of our own potential. And there was just something in that moment where I was like, we're going to push back. It may end up in the same place, but we have to push back and I have to be able to put together a strategy and a rationale for why we're pushing back and why the business should continue to trade. Went to that board meeting and presented the rationale with enough conviction that actually the board were like, this kind of makes sense, but we need to validate that it's even possible and that it's even allowed. And, you know, our FDE CFO at the time had financial models that were incredibly watertight. We had the tires kicked on everything. But what really changed at that point was this notion of we still have some degree of control over our destiny. It's not done until it's done. So the next day, I called the team back on an all hand. And I think that was a moment that changed everything for us. It's probably one of the, the times I've had to give the most rousing speech of my life. But it was very much we're going to fight this. Like We've never done anything the conventional way. We're not going to start being conventional now. The business deserves to exist. Our team has already delivered extraordinary things. They've been through so much. I don't know how this is going to play out, but if we do go down, we're going to go down fighting. And we're going to need every single person to come together to see this business through the other side. And every single member of our team came through in that period. They stood up, they asked how they could help, and they delivered Christmas. Because remember, we're still a retail business based in Q4, as well as this existential crisis on the other side. And we did it. They beat targets. We went into another M&A process, 
and then sold the business for the second time in six months, which we completed at the end of December. Dimple, this is one of the most incredible stories. The level of resilience required and belief you had in the team and culture you built, it really shines through and speaks volumes of your leadership skills. I know that it won't have been easy or fun, but what a great outcome from the position that you were in. I think it's a really important lesson uh, that in the hardest of moments, there's still hope and there's opportunities to turn things around. And I think in these times where, you know, a lot of people are struggling, it's something that we can all cling on to right now and hopefully encourage any founders that are listening to this to dig deep to find those extra reserves of resilience because sometimes amazing things will come out of the back of difficult times. You've previously said to me that you're tough and firm but that you always lead in a people first way and I think there's something about that story you just told that really speaks to that description so do you mind just elaborating on that and talking about the culture you created particularly for anyone that needs to rally the troops right now what can they learn from your leadership style and your experience so I've been called a straight talking northerner on more than one occasion and I think I probably am I'm very open and honest in my feedback. I have really high standards. So my career with Goldman and Love Coffee, I started in live environments where there was not much margin for error. But what that teaches you is operational excellence and the importance of customer service. And both of those are crucial to any business. But it's holding everybody in the organization to those standards, communicating why that care and attention to detail is so important. And I don't do it in a way where I'm policing it or enforcing it because at Truva, we've built a culture of trust where there's an ownership mindset in the team and they hold themselves to those standards because everybody is working collectively to better themselves, but also to move the business forward. Um, and it's very similar to what I built at Love Coffee when I wasn't there five days a week. And I think when teams come together in that way, what you have is the foundation for the business to do extraordinary things. And the most important part after that then is the communication and feedback and creating those feedback loops in a way that everybody shares feedback in a very constructive way. It's never personal. You never go personal with it. But it's done in also a, a safe environment so that it can go both ways. And I've had people in the business come to me, Chloe, who I know you've spoken to as well. And she'd come to me and said, I know that wasn't your best work. And, you know, that's really honest coming from someone on your team, kind of holding the mirror up to you and saying, I think you can do better. Why was this not your best work? And I love that because it holds me to account and it makes me do better for them. So I think well-functioning teams they need those standards, but they need to believe those standards themselves. And they need to understand that everybody there is operating with a team first mindset and in the best interest of the business. That really is amazing. I was actually going to mention Chloe, who was singing your praises about what a great leader you are when she was on the podcast. You really created this culture of psychological safety where your team could come to you and give you feedback. And I think that's a really wonderful thing. Sadly, Dimple, we're at the end of this really enjoyable chat. Um, so it's time for your final three wrap up questions. Now, I know you're a massive believer in the power of mentorship. So I have to ask if you could be mentored by anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? I would go with Indra Nui, who was the former CEO of PepsiCo. So I met her very briefly when I was at Yale. I served her a cup of tea, was absolutely starstruck. 
But she achieved so much and her leadership style was really interesting because she was a female CEO in a very male-dominated space. Received a lot of scrutiny, but she managed it with a really high degree of elegance and articulation. She really bucked the trend in terms of what the markets were expecting from her. So, yeah, very, very much in awe of what she has achieved. I would love to learn from her. That's a great shout. I love it. Now, on to Question Roulette, which is new for this series. Our 40-minute mentor community have chosen three questions for you. So please pick one, two, or three, and we can see what mystery question you've got. I'm going to go with three. This one is perfect, as it's a topic we haven't yet spoken about. So as a venture partner in VC, which you do on the side of your already busy day job, who tend to be the founders that you team up with and like to advise? So... I think this goes back to the piece that we talked about, resilience. I'm a firm believer in resilience being a core part of success in business. I also know that resilience comes from facing adversity and hardship. And the people that who often have the most resilient don't have access to entrepreneurship. So I look for the founders that are the underdogs, the founders who, without the support and without the belief of a VC or a mentor don't have access to build the businesses that they otherwise could do because a successful business caters usually to the 90%. Entrepreneurship is only really accessible to the 1%. So why do we have people in the 1% building businesses for everybody else? So this is, for me, what I look for is, is there something in this founder where they are just the underdog where I can really add value and contribute, how do I support them? I love that. Imagine if we had loads more founders who truly represent our rich tapestry of society, building businesses for the benefit of all of us, rather than just the people that come from private schools or have money anyway, whose parents would have got them internships in VC, etc. I love the answer, Dimple, and couldn't agree more. Finally, Dimple, if there was one piece of advice that you'd like to leave our listeners with, what would it be? Something that I've been thinking about, definitely post-made, is be kind and be generous. And I know those are not two words that we talk about often in tech. I should clarify, I do not mean be nice. I don't like that word. And often it's very, very (laughs) insincere. By being kind, you're empathetic. You do the right thing by others. You do the right thing by the business. And by being generous, it means you're not operating from a point of scarcity. You understand that it's not a zero-sum game. And that generosity, I think, is the key to what is going to help reduce some of the inequality and inaccessibility as well. It could be as simple as giving people your time, advocating for somebody. Those pieces are going to help move everyone forward. So I think taking a step back, being kind and being generous, fundamentally, I think, are are really, really important. I don't think we could have two more important words to leave our listeners with. So Dimple, thank you so much for sharing your remarkable story with us. It's an inspiring one full of ups and downs and, you know, incredible levels of resilience. So many learnings for our audience. Um, So it's been a real, real pleasure having you on 40 Minute Mentor. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Great. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for tuning into today's episode. 
Before we let you go, I wanted to ask a small favour. This year's Great British Podcast Listener's Choice Award is open for nominations and we would really appreciate your vote for 40 Minute Mentor. So if you have a spare minute today, please head over to britishpodcastawards.com forward slash voting and nominate 40 Minute Mentor. Thank you so much for voting for us and we're really looking forward to seeing you again next week for more pocket-sized mentorship.